podcast, we talked to Mario Zapponi. Mario is the founder and one of the principal partners in the Zapponi Group. They are an M&A advisory firm like Global Wine Partners. There's a couple of things I wanted to point out about Mario and myself, our businesses. The first is to keep in mind, this podcast is about entrepreneurship. It's about the wine industry, and it's about the professionals around the wine industry, the ecosystem that supports the industry. All of the folks in our line of work in these markets, whether it's Oregon, Washington, California, for the most part, we are self-employed. We are all entrepreneurs. And it's a difficult way to make a living because we only get paid if the deal closes. I mean, we get some fees here, consulting and some engagement fees and this and that. But fundamentally, if the deal doesn't close, we we don't get paid. And neither do our employees <laughs> and cascades on and on. So we're taking a risk ourselves to support the industry in a meaningful way. And one of the things that we talk about in the interview to come is the fact that sometimes with the folks who own a big, important, special winery, there is this tendency to go outside of the market to hire investment banks. And, you know, Mario comes up with some you know reasonable reasons why some folks may decide to do that. But I, I do really want to make the pitch for those out in the audience, if they own a big, fancy winery, to consider that your winery is going to get sold at a very high price, not because of who you hire, but because of what you've built or what your parents have built, that's going to drive the value. We know some very particular things about the wine industry. New York investment banks know very particular things about being a New York investment bank. But I tend to think that what they're better at or best at is selling their own services, not necessarily selling your winery. And what we're real good at is selling your winery. And uh, we're also local. <laughs> we're paying local landlords. We're buying local meals. We've got local employees, and we've taken a big risk to support the industry. And so I'm just making the pitch that if you're going to sell something real fancy, and please do talk to the New York folks, but consider locals when you get ready to sell your wine company. So with that, here is Maria Zapponi and Carol Collison talking about how to sell a wine company. So Maria Zapponi of Zapponi Group, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Carol. Yeah, <laughs> you're a friend of Mark Brody's, and I thought we would begin our conversation with a shout out. Mark Brody is a banker, now retired, that was going to do this podcast with me, and you're friends with him. So, hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. And I I don't know if Mark would take umbrage to being called retired. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, he's too smart, and he's too restless to be retired. Good. I hope he comes back, for sure. And then he can join me on this podcast. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. Well, again, thanks for joining me. So people in the industry who hear this or see the headline and it says Carol Collison interviews Mario Zapponi, we're in the same line of work. I'm a wine M&A advisor and you're a wine M&A advisor. They're, they may ask, why on earth is Carol inviting a competitor onto her brand new podcast? And I'll answer that question. Then you can tell me why you agreed to it. I, uh, <laughs> For me, it's a couple fold. Number one is I do want this podcast to actually be educational, informative, and helpful. That's kind of job one. I don't want it to be relentlessly promotional. I don't think that's interesting anyway, right? Um, number two, I think that I, I feel like your firm and our firm are somewhat congruous in our approach, you know, to how we are in, deal in the industry, deal with our clients, deal with buyers, you know. I very much appreciate your professionalism and um, 
straightforward uh, way you approach the business. And then I guess the last is that we're competitors, but you know, I have a very uh, strong preference to work on smaller deals and you have a strong preference to work on bigger deals. And so there's space in which we're competitors, but you know, not exactly. So that's kind of my logic is to be helpful so people can hear what the Mario is a pony who's got, I mean, you do have like biggest market share, I would say in our line of work. So why are you here? Thank you. Well, I mean, it, there's good overlap with everything you said. I think that generally speaking, have a lot of respect for you, Carol, what you do, how you do it in the marketplace, good karma in the marketplace. And ironically, something that you probably didn't expect, and I didn't really expect, but I think Mark Brody is a little bit of a commonality between mm -hmm. both of us as well. And he's been a great example of good karma because I think Mark's helped you out in your career. He's helped me out in my career and our firm's career and been able to do that just in a very genuine way. So look, I do think that uh, it's always good to share market information, trends, and make sure that we're kind of not just kind of sharing information, but also being able to give heads up to our common client base, peer base, when it comes to best practices and, and things like that. Why did you leave the law practice and decide to join the Zapponi Group? I know this is ancient history. I think I joined this firm in 2008. The reason I ask is, of course, as we all know, they get paid no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing these deals, working our tails off, and they're just racking up the billable hours. Why did you decide to do this thing? Yeah, completely accidental. I mean, completely accidental. But, you know, when I started off practicing law, I was corporate real estate that happened to fall into a mid-sized firm that had a wine practice. And wine was not even on my radar. So you probably know this person. Ron Larson was my mentor. And it was just by good fortune that I was working with Ron. And at that time, Ron, I mean, he was kind of, is he Trincaro, right? Yeah, he was in that small group. There was very few designated wine law attorneys that really were trying to carve that niche out. I think you put Jim Seth in that category, and there's a few others, Frank Farella. But Ron was definitely squarely in that. At the time, he was representing Sutter Home, which is Trincaro. He was representing Glen Ellen, the Benzigers, and a host of other you know, wineries, the Christian Brothers, uh, when it was owned by well, let's just say the brothers, the De La Salle Institute. And so that's kind of how I cut my teeth, completely accidental. I was not looking to get into this niche. And then, you know, during that course, met deal makers like John Fisher, who okay. probably have come across. Yep. And I still have a really good relationship with John. He's been a really good mentor and friend. But to be able to see, you know, that whole process of, you know, from start to finish, you know, how clients grow, how some clients elect to go through a sale process and, and whatnot. And truth be told, Carol, I've always kind of wanted to be a deal maker. And so I never really fully fashioned myself as being a lifelong attorney. And that's kind of what led me to get into this. Great. I did not correctly calculate the fact that, yeah, you do get paid in law <laughs> a little bit easier. How's that? Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, easier to collect the funds for sure. But uh, the problem I have sometimes with some lawyers, and uh, while we're on the subject, I will just say as part of deal making, is you know I sometimes have a difficult time because the lawyer's job is to bring out the known or possible risks in a transaction. And we go through these processes with the disclosure schedules and all that. But I've had times where I've had to be like, okay, to my client, yeah, that's 
a long tail theoretical risk. And yeah, I understand why your lawyer needs to you know walk you through what you're signing up for. But you know, I've had transactions where the client's business was cratering. I said, like, there's the known risk of continuing to own this winery, or the long tail possible future risk of something going wrong in the in you know after the close. Having that practice, I think, is good. Does it very? Do you bring that? experience to deals? Yeah, it's funny. As you're actually saying that, I think doing what we do now would make me a better lawyer if I ever went back to the law. Because you're right. I mean, there's a lot of lawyers that technically are correct, bright, anticipate issues and whatnot. But the one probably biggest challenge when it comes to getting the right counsel for the right deal is the practicality of, yeah, you know, this can happen, but how likely is it? And how do you weigh that in the broader spectrum of what's at risk here economically, both in terms of a purchase price, as well as some cases, as you know, there's the risk of operations. And it's not so much that I'm going to be, you know, making tens of millions of dollars. It's more of, I get to get out of a business venture that didn't necessarily go the way I wanted. And the quicker I get out, the better. So that's probably the biggest. And of course, being now, you know, on the M&A side of it, the deal side of it, realizing that, you know, there's a lot of great lawyers that work in this industry, but you have to get the right alignment for the right situation in order to go ahead and, and drive a successful transaction. Yeah. And they're, they're fundamental. I mean, to what we do, it's a happy moment when we call in the lawyers, right? It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got a term sheet before we get on to just sort of the general, like, Current market? What do you see? What, you know, I just did want to touch. There was one, you know, somewhat mercenary reason I wanted to have a conversation with you. And it was about the idea of sort of certain types of deals. If somebody has a really big, fancy, or very big transaction, sometimes because they're so big and important, they should really go to these New York out, out of state advisors. You bump across this, we bump across this, you know, is that uh, the hardest thing to see is when you see wineries that have a lot of value, feel like they need to go to New York City, larger investment banks to get their transactions done because it brings a different level of expertise, a different outreach to buyers. And, you know, it's easy to say this, but when you are focused in an industry that is somewhat of a cottage, smaller industry, we have a pretty good sense of who the buyer pool is, even overseas, because of the ability to write a small check or a large check and, you know, the different attributes that the winery might have. And so when you see them go to, you know, larger Wall Street investment banks, and then you see the ultimate purchaser of the winery, and you kind of feel like, well, there was no secret sauce to that. But <laughs> no. I suppose in all in all fairness, the, the thing that I give credit to is these larger investment banks, very bright, they're machines, they can churn out work product. They're almost like 3D copiers. They are that efficient. <laughs> you know, and then when you have um particularly like private equity or publicly traded companies where they have these fiduciary duties to their shareholders and whatnot, they need to make sure that they're following best practices. And so are they going to go ahead and risk an investment that may have a lot at stake by going with a boutique firm as opposed to going with a broad, you know, broader, larger firm where no one's going to second guess them? 
Yeah, no, that's fair. It's like the IBM situation. Yeah, good for you. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Ah, makes sense, but it's still irritating because that's all that money. I mean, you're going to get this deals, not me, right? The idea of sustaining local businesses in the winery ecosystem. You know, I I get that, you know, you're at these situations you outlined, publicly traded, private equity, you've got some rules to deal with. But outside of that, I just, for those large winery owners out there in the world, do consider us locals. We know a lot. We know very specific things that these guys don't. And to your point, you know, a lot of times you see who the buyer is and you're like, anybody would have done that deal. (laughs) There's something to be said about focus, right? Because if you're a generalist, you'll do everything correct, but you may not be able to go that deep to understand buyer pools and nuances in terms of, you know, you name it, in terms of, you know, financial statements and value adds in terms of, you know, asset alignment. But when you're a specialist and you dig deeper in it, you're going to see all that stuff relatively quickly. And you're going to know, Carol, if you take a, a winery to the market, you're going to know that, hey, if I show that to Duckhorn, they've already got you know, two others that look like that, what is going to be the difference just because it's the name Duckhorn? You know, you'll understand that there's a lot more that has to go into aligning a really credible buyer pool with your sale process. And especially how that also spills over into confidentiality, right? Because, you know, the more that people you talk to, despite how many non-disclosure agreements you may have signed by parties, Word still sometimes leaks out, and it's to all of our great disappointment, but it's, I suppose, human nature in a small industry. Well, yeah, and it's important in this line of work because if your distributors get wind that you're selling, they'll take their oars out of the water. If your employees hear you're selling, your better ones may take flight. So, yeah, it's confidentiality is important. I say that, however, that, you know, basically we have everybody go through the exercise of signing. But somebody who's going to gossip is going to gossip whether they signed or not. And somebody who's going to maintain confidentiality is going to do that whether they signed a piece of paper or not. But it's important to go through that exercise just to put everybody on notice. So confidentiality, I mean, that's one of the things I think some of the outside folks don't understand. There was a large couple years ago where I'm pretty sure that they didn't get the buyers that they wanted, didn't get offers, and they decided that the right thing to do was to leak which works in which manufacturer baby or tech or something, oh, such and such for sale. But, it, you know, what it did was actually tank the brands. Yeah. But, you know, you on that point, though, there's two parts of the confidentiality that are really important to a winery owner. The, f- the first one is their own employees, right? Yeah. To see a, a vacation of all this talent that you've accumulated over years and trust. And then the second one is if you're in the three-tier system, once distributors find out that you may be marketing your brand for sale, the smaller you are and the more independent you are, the greater the repercussions that could be negative to that brand. Yep, exactly. So speaking of buyers, <laughs> speaking of the buyer process, Jacqueline, producing this podcast, tracks transactions for us, but just M&A, not, I mean, we look at the vineyards and the empty wineries and all those real estate deals for sure. We keep an eye on them, but try to keep an eye mostly on M&A selling the wine brand as a going concern. And first quarter of this year was brutal. There was zero. I mean, we've kind of only publicly announced and we do Oregon, Washington, California, but there were zero brand transactions in the first quarter. What, what are you seeing out there? 
Well, you did the Han deal. You broke the seal yeah. there a little bit, right? That was like the first, because there were a couple of principal deals that got announced, like uh, the Dexley Boyne Sellers, you know, that that yeah, wasn't really arm's length. You know? Yeah, that wasn't really arm's length. But the Han, you kind of broke the seal. That was like the first decent sized deal that happened. Look, it's, it is definitely a challenging marketplace. Primarily kind of how we see it is it's challenging because it's driven by economic factors and kind of the linchpin to that is interest rates. And so the rise, the rapid rise in interest rates has done no favors to anybody in, you know, whether you're in the wine industry or not, but in particular, it has kind of really ratcheted up the hurdle rates of return for institutional monies. Like, you know, if we're talking vineyards for people that are buying vineyards that on a regular basis that are more of your institutional players, their rate of return requirements now go up because the interest rates go up and they use debt. When it comes to winery purchasers, some of them, even the, the all cash ones, they still have some imputed internal rate of return that they like to use and, and they like to clear. And when you have a rising interest rate environment, it's going to put pressure on elevating those returns, right? So they're going to need a higher return. And all that means is that it's going to squeeze valuations. And so valuations that were whatever they were in 2021, 2022, there's a likelihood that there's more pressure on those valuations today. Now, the good thing about the wine space is that, you know, this is the good and the bad of the wine spaces is not necessarily a very liquid market. So you want to sell. It doesn't mean that you're going to find a buyer very quickly. And you want to sell, but you only want to sell at a certain price, then you probably are going to be patient and you're going to either wait until you get your price because you feel strong enough about the fundamentals of your wine business, or you're going to pull it off the market, you know, and say, I'll just wait for a better time. The good news is that we're not seeing, personally, our, our firm is not seeing a lot of distress in the marketplace. Carol, I don't know about you, but even back in 2008, 2010, Despite all the headlines about, you know, distress and the inquiries we got from third parties about, okay, so show us all the wineries that now we can get a really good value on. There were not a lot of, you know, wineries that were in that kind of a pickle where they had to sell at substantial discounts. I don't know. I mean, did you see that? Well, I agree with that. I, I think that, you know, we worked on a few, mostly because we did that REIT, which was yeah, whole another story. So we worked on a few distressed deals. But no, I agree. I think that yeah, you know, people have such large investments in the real estate and the inventory, and the, you know that they're not going to walk away or give a, take a huge discount on any of those assets. Generally speaking, but one of the things I talk to people about, and I'll say it again now, is that um, you know the way most people get out of the wine business is they just stop making wine and the last person who leaves, you know, shuts out the lights. You know, sell through it normal revenues, you know, last person to leave, close the, you know, shut out the lights and then we'll sell the building. You know, I did research a billion years ago. I talk about it all the time. It was very valuable. It's like 10 years of great info, but it's like five to one, like 20 deals a year. And it's a hundred that just kind of throw in the towel. And so I think that's part of, I mean, people don't necessarily have to, when you have a multi-million dollar investment in inventory and you decide that the business operationally, for whatever reason, you don't want to do it anymore. And maybe you try a sale process, maybe you don't, but you can get out if you just quietly sell, stop making wine, don't make new vintages and just, you know, you got two or three years worth of revenue and you can kind of, now you don't have to produce. So you're not spending money on grapes and bottle, you know, all of it. So I think that's another reason that people don't transact at low, 
low volumes is they have a lot of investment and inventory, which they can rely on. I'm curious. So from what you see, why do you see people get out of the industry? Well, it's, these are mostly mom and pops, right? And I kind of work on the smaller tier wineries. And so it's usually folks who just, you know, they're ready to retire. The kids aren't interested. I mean, that's kind of the, that's sort of the traditional circumstance in which I'm getting asked because I'm, I'm mostly working with, you know, closely held small companies. You, you work on sort of the bigger corporate deals. I mean, what are they up to? You know, I, I think if you got down to it, there's probably a lot more in common than not. But the logical one, and this has been reported for the last 15, 20 years by SVB, and that is, you know, the whole succession planning and, you know, seeing the aging of these privately, the ownership of the privately held wine companies and saying at that at some point they're going to have to transact if there's not a clear plat, you know, pathway for succession. And sure enough, that's we're seeing that happen slowly but surely. And it still is surprising, even though it's not surprising when you see some of these names like the Phelpses, the Rombauers, that's just going to continue to happen, especially when the value of these brands are so large, it makes it that much more difficult to transition to the next generation. And truthfully, I think it it just shows what a fantastic job companies like Gallo and Jackson Family have done to safeguard transition planning in their organizations. And you can put mm-hmm. Trinquero in the mix. You can put Delicato mm-hmm. in the mix. I mean, it's really, really hard to do it right, especially if you've done it through multi-generations with everything that's at stake tax-wise, governance-wise, and then keeping a family all on the same page. Everybody wants to retire at some point. So either you're going to, most people don't want to die with their boots on, although, you know, I might, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) My job is not as hard. I'm on the, I'm doing, you know, internet, telephone calls. I'm not, you know, out there in New York talking to distributors. So, you know, I could see how that would get old. Well, you know, the the other one though, Carol, just to touch on, and we see it with mid-sized uh, wineries. We certainly see it with smaller wineries. It's that constant grind. You said it to be in New York to meet with distributors. This industry is really attractive, seductive, passionate because of the whole lifestyle eye candy that we all see. You go and you visit a, a vineyard, you go and you see this palatial winery estate and you go, wow, you know, and you begin to dream and think what a wonderful lifestyle it is. You know, get out of my current profession. I'll own a winery and raise my family on the estate. We'll sell wine. We'll be able to travel and all that. And everybody usually thinks about it with the assets that they see. So it starts with buying assets. It starts with making really, really great wine. But the one thing that drives everybody out of this industry faster than anything else is they all forget how difficult it is to sell it. All of them. I mean, yeah. and it ruins dreams. I mean, you we've met, I know you have had similar meetings where you're meeting with people and they're just done because of how difficult it is to sell, especially in today's market. You know, think back what it was like 30 years ago, 50 years ago, when you had kind of a wide open feel, you wanted access to the marketplace, easy. You just sign up a distributor, you kind of educate them on your wines, you go through the taste tests and all this stuff. Well, that's when you had thousands of distributors, you know, in the marketplace. And today there's graphics. In fact, we've even used some of these graphics where I think that at one point there was 
well over 1,500, maybe even 2,500 distributors. And now there's maybe, I think it's the exact figure is somewhere over 5,000. And now it's maybe 700 distributors nationally. And of those 700, the market's controlled by really the three largest that control two-thirds of the market. But I'll say this, I think the distributors get a little bit of a bad rap too, because they are definitely necessary. Otherwise, you would end up with a system like in the UK, where you're just dealing directly with the retailers. And the retailers, all they want is private label. The problem is we're kind of it feels like this system is getting squeezed in that direction because the retailers are the ones that are forcing the consolidation at the distributor level, Yeah, which is now, you know, and so the distributors are trying to be efficient to fit the retailers' needs and cover all the different regional and national footprints of the retailers. And then, so they have to go ahead and acquire that, you know, through M&A. And then, but the cascading effect is now, that puts pressure on the producers that, you know, they have to have bulging portfolios in order to be relevant with the distributors who need to have bulging portfolios concentrated with certain brands in order to be relevant for retailers. It's just, yeah. You know, I call I called this uh, podcast Small Fortune for a reason. It's a very, very, very tough business for a variety of reasons everywhere you yep. look. So. so Mario, we're getting to the end of our talk. Let's share our favorite deals. I'll tell you what my best deal was. It was my personal best start to finish. We started the project in April. We closed in December. That is like start to finish the best transaction I've worked on. <laughs> and so from that standpoint, it was great. And the, one of the reasons we were able to do it is we executed a specific strategy, which is we went to the one buyer that my client really liked. And we said, hey, man, he really wants to sell to you if you can make a fair deal. And this is what we think a fair deal looks like. And they're like, yes, we're super interested. But of course, as you know, what we have to deal with is the the folks we have to interact with, you know, there's not a big corporate development department. So the CEO says, yeah, I'm interested. Then he goes out on the in the market for six months, right? But so we weren't able to close it. We could have closed it sooner, except for the guy was busy. And so it was hard for us to get his attention. So that's where having a process comes in where you can credibly say, okay, if we don't hear from you by such and such date, now we're marketing more broadly and voila, he gets involved and interested and, and got the deal done. So that was, that's my personal best. What's your favorite? Same. It actually works the same way. You know, we, um, and it happened a few times, uh, taking on, you know, really interesting media engagements, having an understanding of value, having an understanding of the best buyers in the marketplace and really being able to isolate the best buyer and understanding why that buyer is the best buyer and why that buyer would be interested in our you know particular brand and then going to them prepared to go to the market but going to them first and saying look this is what's going to happen we're going to go to the market but we think you're the best steward of this brand and get back to us in 15 days Here's the materials, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, look, you can't always identify a best buyer, but when there's instances, and I know you know, Carol, where it's pretty obvious who the best buyer is. And when it works, it's fantastic. You've done the client a huge service because, you know, people say, well, how can you know that you got the best out of a transaction if you never took it to the marketplace? And you'll know that because I I always like to call it the eBay effect when eBay 
I don't think people use eBay that much anymore, like <laughs> they did in the early 2000s. But eBay, you could go and you participate in this public auction process that is, you don't know who you're bidding against, but you're bidding for a certain item. But then they always gave you the option of the buy it now price. If you don't want it to go to the auction, you could buy it now and then short circuit the whole yeah. auction and it's yours. And that's how I look at it is that yeah. you're going to offer it for a premium. You're going to say, we think it's worth every bit of it, but you don't want to buy it now. You can get in line and you can participate in the process with everybody else and you can roll the dice. But we've run mostly run out of time. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Carol. And thank you for having me. And great idea. I think it's great. Great service you're doing. Well, I'm looking forward to getting the feedback from our little conversation today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hi, Small Fortune listeners. If you have any questions or ideas for Carol, email us at smallfortunepodcast at gmail.com. And we'd really love it if you could follow us on your favorite podcast platform and like, review, or share the show. Please join us next time. Thanks. I just did want to touch. There was one somewhat mercenary reason I wanted to have a conversation with you. And it was about the idea of certain types of deals. Somebody has a really big, fancy, oh, very big transaction. Sometimes they, I think they, because they're so big and important, they should really go to these New York out, out of state advisors. And uh, size doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> just. <laughs>